And, and I did that with my smaller multifamilies uh, in the beginning. Um, there was that moment there when I considered doing it myself. And you really, in this business, you have to really um, look into your heart and figure out what do you want to be? Do you want, do you want to be a property manager or do you want to be an investor? And I think some people are great at both. Um, I know that I would not, I would be a terrible property manager. I don't want to talk to residents. I don't want them calling me. As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got the great pleasure of having Brian Hammer with me today. Brian, how are things out in California? <laughs> uh, great, Jerome, except I'm in Michigan. Michigan. I knew- you might be thrown off by the area code on my phone number. Yeah, so that did surprise me. I got the opportunity. Now I got Brian's cell phone. I can text him now. He can't get away. That's right. Yeah, I used to live in Santa Monica, California, and I have the very coveted 310 area code. So when I moved back to Michigan, because I'm from Michigan originally, I had to keep the 310. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. When I talk to people from California, it's like this super special place. Um, one of my friends in Florida was telling me how there's no bugs in the area. He was in like San Diego or something. I was like, what do you mean there's no bugs? He's like, we go outside and there's no mosquitoes. <laughs> like, that can't be possible. And I've checked with the numerous people. It's a real thing, huh? Yeah, well, it's just so dry there. It's it's a desert type weather, so uh, yeah, you don't get as many bugs, uh, but you get other things there. Perfect, perfect. So, Brian, I assume you're not going to give your cell phone number out to all the listeners, but if they want to get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, I the, my company is called Hamrick Investment Group. I'm currently in the process of rebranding. Um, right now, they can go to uh, higinvestor.com. You can also email me at brian, B-R-I-A-N, at higinvestor.com. Uh, but I'm rebranding my company to be Next Level Investment Club. And I'm excited about that because uh, it's, it's uh, really helped me focus my, uh, my attention on what I'm very good at and what I should uh, bring in strategic partners to help me with. And so... Out of curiosity, what are you really good at as we dig into your background? Well, I, I'm creating Next Level Investment Club. And by the way, we have over 40 investors. We have 32 million plus in acquisitions. We focus on um, uh, cash flowing real estate and real estate developments, primarily in multifamily and apartments, but we also do self-storage performing and non-performing notes and a little bit of office and a little bit of retail as well. Um, what I'm really good at is opportunistic investing. I started investing in 2008 and uh, I, I, coming from California, we moved back to Michigan in 2005 and I could just see that real estate bubble forming and I waited till it popped, started buying in 2008 uh, multifamily apartments. By 2015, I bought my last apartment complex and just I've been sitting on the sidelines as far, far as multifamily goes since then. Uh, also started diversifying into self-storage and, and um, performing and non-performing notes. But my specialty 
is basically buying uh, distressed properties. You know, back in the Great Recession, it was foreclosures and short sales. Uh, or finding deals that are off market. I do not like bidding wars. I do not like competition. Um, typically, if a broker has put it out there on the market, I'm not even going to look at it because I'm just not that uh, much of a, a sadist. Yeah, I don't enjoy the competition piece either. I think everything that we've bought in the past year, maybe 18 months, we've been the only people to see it. So it's pretty exciting when you're able to get inside traction. That's the best way to go. If you can get those, those inside connections and, and be the, the only one at the table, um, that makes a big difference. I think so. So you, you kind of mentioned it really smoothly in the conversation, like 40 million in acquisitions or something like that. Yeah, for, we have over 40 investors. We have 32 million plus in acquisitions and that's spread out between self-storage, performing and non-performing notes, and primarily multifamily and apartments. Okay. And so this is multifamily missteps. And so let's talk about the multifamily portfolio. Like what's the range in size for your multifamily? So multifamily, we currently have 370 units. All of them are located here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, I used to own a 71 unit in uh, Lansing, Michigan. So altogether, I've owned up to 450 units. Uh, I'm net seller at this point. And um, uh, I, I own everything from duplexes all the way up to a 207 unit apartment community. So I thought it was go big or go home. Why on earth would you have a 200 unit and a two unit? Well, I, I cut my teeth. The first, I started in single family. When I lived in Los Angeles, I was buying single family homes throughout the country. And I realized pretty quickly that going big and going home did not involve single family for me because um, I had remote management. Uh, you know, I, I, I had no idea what was going on with these properties because they were out of state. So I knew I wanted to get into multifamily. The first one I, I bought was a 12 unit in 2008. And then, like I said, I'm an opportunistic investor. So I just started picking up a duplex here, a four unit here. And these were all distressed properties in the sense that they were foreclosures, short sales during the Great Recession. So I was, it was basically low hanging fruit. Um, I got up to a 37 unit, then bought a five unit, then a six unit. Uh, and then I bought the 71 unit in Lansing, uh, 207 unit. I started syndicating, obviously, bringing in other people's money. I uh, bought the 207 unit, and then the last acquisition in 2015 was a 96 unit historic property. And I like I like both. I think um, both the smaller multifamily and the larger uh, apartment complexes have their their pluses and minuses. It's really each you know it's deal specific. Deal specific. So when you buy these, when you say you're opportunistic, there's like the sharks and then there's another level and then you kind of keep moving up the spectrum of, I think everybody as an investor thinks they're opportunistic. So are you buying like these properties with super low occupancy and just basically non-performing, you can't get bank financing or like where, where's your appetite for the risk on your deals? That's a great question. And, and again, it's deal specific in the sense, I'll give you some examples. So we bought, the first large multifamily I bought was 37 units, and that was a short sale. Uh, a group of doctors from out of state had bought a, a, a property in a C area. They had overpaid for it before the Great Recession. 
there, we were up against one other bidder on this and we were able to pick up 37 units for $600,000. Uh, we had to put another 200000 into it, but that has become a property that we've refinanced several times over, and we pulled all of our money out, you know, two or three times over. So uh, we're, we're making infinite cash flow off of that. Um, that's one example. There, the large 207-unit apartment complex, that was a turnkey property. It was already performing as it should be, um, and we, it was listed by a broker but we were not bidding on on it because it was part of a much larger package. There were probably, I don't know, I want to say maybe uh, 10 large apartment complexes in the area. And um, two of those communities were run as one community. And that's what we bought. And the reason we were able to buy them was because the buyers who were buying the larger package, uh, the, these two properties did not fit into their criteria. They, they consider them to be C properties in a C area, but we knew that they were really more like B minus properties in a B minus area. And uh, they, they, they had the whole package under contract, but they peeled these off. So I, I consider that buying in between market because they'd been taken off the market, but the buyers didn't want these two particular properties. We were able to come in and step into their shoes and get it at a, at a really good price. And uh, it's performed like a, yeah, like a dream. It's performed exactly as we, we expected it to. It's been a turnkey type property. What's the secret on property management? Because so many people struggle with that one. How are you guys making that work? Yeah, I, I made the decision early on that I was going to hire uh, third party professional management. And I did that with my smaller multifamilies uh, in the beginning. Um, there was that moment there when I considered doing it myself. And you really, in this business, you have to really um, look into your heart and figure out what do you want to be? Do you want, do you want to be a property manager or do you want to be an investor? And I think some people are great at both. Um, I know that I would not, I would be a terrible property manager. I don't want to talk to residents. I don't want them calling me. Um, I want someone else to take that on for me. So, uh, with the smaller multifamilies, I, I had, brought on a, a really good third-party property management company. As I decided to go larger, I realized, you know what, I need to partner with someone who, who knows how to manage these larger communities. And there was, there was a particular property in the area that I, was, I always had my eye on. And I realized, you know what, whoever's managing that property, that's someone I want to get to know. So um, that was uh, Marty Green, Green Property Management. Anybody who's from West Michigan would know that name. And uh, I got to know him and we, he ended up managing the property in Lansing. And that went so well for us that we ended up partnering together and bought two larger apartment communities. So, so I don't own the property management company, but my partner does. And, and there, you know, his team is, is really my team as well. Now, I listened to your podcast, and I can't remember, but I think you have like a, a shout out to him during your podcast, right? Yeah, he, he, yeah. so I, I host the podcast, the Rental Property Owner and Real Estate Investor Podcast. And uh, right away from the very beginning, even before I was ready to have sponsors, Marty came to me and he said, hey, I want to be your first sponsor. So uh, he's been sponsoring the show for the past three years, and, and uh, that's great because I get to... I get to basically, um, you know, I'm, I'm selling on the show what I've already bought is, is his management team. 
Beautiful. And so, what did you do before you got into real estate full time? What, what had you down in the Bay Area or L.A.? Well, so if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see the movie posters behind me. Um, one of the posters is Remember the Titans. And I worked on the trailer for that movie. So my business, I have 20 years in movie marketing. I'm no longer in that business, but I spent 20 years in movie marketing, 11 of those years living in Los Angeles, working for different vendors, different studios, uh, as a, a copywriter, editor, producer of, of motion picture trailers and TV spots. And then, and then when I moved back to Michigan, I worked remotely for about eight years. Wow, now that's cool. So what made you get out of all like the glitz and glam and come over to the dark side with all those real estate owners? <laughs> well, when I was single, I've always been a saver. I've always been very conservative with my money. And uh, I was in a, I found myself in a profession. I went out to Los Angeles to make movies, found myself in this niche making movie trailers instead. And it paid really well. And I, was saving up all this money. And I realized at one point, I said, you know, I'm making all this money and I don't, I'm not spending it because I have nothing to spend it on. I wasn't married, didn't have a family at the time. And I don't like fancy cars or, or uh, um, expensive things. So I, I said, if I knew how to deploy this money smartly, I won't have to work for the, you know, for the, the rest of my career. I'll be able to retire early. So I started looking into ways to do that. Uh, that's of course, you know, everybody starts with rich dad, poor dad. That's when I came across rich dad, poor dad. And um, that really opened my eyes to real estate investing, which then led to this path where I started invest. I found a network in Los Angeles that was investing in single families across the country. Uh, got plugged into that. A good experience didn't really make any money from it but it just opened up every step you take leads to more steps and that's when i started realizing well multifamily apartments uh um you know efficiency of scale density all that you know it, it all goes into making uh bigger profits and that and it just led down that road to where finally i uh, or eventually i learned how to syndicate raise other people's money and uh, every step of the way it's been what do I need to learn or who do I need to partner with to get to the next level? So did you do any like education programs or anything to get kind of to move to that next level? Yes. Yes. So, um, I, if, do you want me to name names? Cause I'd be happy to name names and tell you who, who I've learned from and partnered with and all those things. So, so I'm a big believer. I, I you know, not Jerome, you and I were talking about this before we started rolling here. Um, I know that there are a lot of people who pay for training and coaching and, and gurus and all that and never get anything from that. But I am a big believer in, in paying for training, paying for education. As long as you know what you want to get out of it as long as you're very specific and targeted as to what you need from that coach, that training, that, uh, um, you know, the training material. So I started the first, um, well, I'll start with the network I was in in Los Angeles. I don't think it's still around, but it was the Marshall Reddick network. And they, and you didn't pay to be in that, but they made money from the properties you would buy around the country. And they had a, a number of uh, relationships with brokers, lenders, insurance companies, management companies in 
good uh, cities and good states that were growing and, and had like the, the, the demographics in their favor for population growth and wage growth. So I bought about seven single family homes through them. Uh, when I started thinking, you know what, I really want to get into multifamily. Uh, the, the, the big name at the time was David Lindahl. And he's still out there. He's, I think his training uh, really, uh, it's stuff that stays with me today. So I, I found that training very valuable. Um, Sue Nelson is another name. I, I, uh, she, um, she does both notes, uh, commercial performing notes and non-performing notes, and she does multifamily and apartments. So I paid for training and coaching through her program, but I knew specifically what I wanted. Um, I also went to uh, David Lindahl. When I wanted to learn how to syndicate, David Lindahl was the one guy at the time who was doing training on that. So I learned syndication through his program. Um, yeah, so, so that's, uh, I did go down those, those paths, but I also found, you know, a lot of it is, is partnering with the right people who know what they're doing, bringing attorneys on if you're syndicating and, and by syndicating, I mean, raising money from other people, have a good attorney who knows how to keep it legal and, and, uh, and do it right. What's up guys? It's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know, we launched Myers Methods in the fall of 2019 with the ambition to inspire a new breed of multifamily investor. If you are interested in getting into multifamily or scaling your current business, hop over to our website at MyersMethods.com to grab your free four-step guide on how to get the ball rolling. And so now that we've kind of went all over the place, I know that you've got a quad where you learned a few lessons along the way. So if you don't mind, tell me a little bit about the background on that and let's dive into these missteps. Yeah. So Jerome, I, I love the name of your podcast, Multifamily Missteps. And it inspired me to, uh, to actually like put down here uh, a, an example of a four unit that I bought. And this was back in 2009. So I, and I want to preface this by saying, look, we're, we are recording this May of 2020. It's mid-May. Uh, we're in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic. And we don't know what types of opportunistic investing are going to be coming, whether there are going to be any or not. But the thing I want to caution your listeners about is don't just assume because you can get something at a bargain basement price that it's actually a good deal. Okay. Um, back in 2009, and this was the depths of the Great Recession, when you could pick up amazing deals, I bought a four unit that was here in Grand Rapids, and uh, it was in a, it was in it was on the edge of a kind of a not so good neighborhood, but right across the street from a better neighborhood. So it was kind of right on the dividing line. We considered it to be, um, you know, a, a property that we could get a good good tenants into, and we paid $21,500 for it. Okay. Now the gross income for this property, uh, once it was up and running, I think there was a, an efficiency that we were getting for, that was currently going for 425, two one bedrooms that were about 525, and a two bedroom that was 625. So altogether, that's about $2,200 a month in rent income. So just on the 1% rule, you know, that people go by sometimes, we could have paid over $200,000 for this property at any other time. And in fact, today, I'll bet it would still go for over 200,000. We pay 21,500, 
which is $5,375 per door. I mean, that's unheard of. Um, we knew, and we, we, of course, we had to pay cash because it was a foreclosure and banks would not lend on, on foreclosures at that time. So we had to pay cash and we also estimated our improvement budget to be around $35,000. And that included putting a new roof on for 12,000, uh, electrical upgrades for 5,000, uh, 12,000 to, for foundation repairs and some other exterior type repairs. And uh, all in, we were about 56,500, which is still 14,000 a door, give or take. And you know, by all indications, once this was leased up, this should have been a cash cow, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, let me tell you what happened. And, and this, these are things that we, we could have anticipated had I had more experience to know to look for them and just things that we could never have anticipated. So within two weeks of buying this property, and I, uh, it was a foreclosure, but there were still two of the units were, had occupants in them. And these occupants seemed to be paying their rent. Within two weeks of buying this property, I got a letter from the police department, the Grand Rapids Police Department, informing me that they had to break down the door on unit one and arrest the occupants for selling crack cocaine and marijuana and other um, un uh, unknown white pills. So right away, we have a problem because uh, we have drug dealers living in one of our units. Uh, we were able to evict them. I, again, I had third party management, so they were able to evict them pretty quickly. And that was great uh, because then, then uh, we were able to go in and rehab their unit, which cost, I, I want to say we put another $5,000 to rehab that unit, uh, make it nice, get new tenants in there. Uh, a couple months after that, one of our tenants, unfortunately, died in his unit. Uh, this was the other tenant who had been there when, when we bought the property. And uh, he had died in such a way that we had to go in and, and rehab completely his unit as well. Uh, so, so that's another $5,000. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know what it was, it, 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 I, I don't want to make it sound gruesome, but it was, it was a natural death, but, um, you know, sometimes even natural deaths can still cost you a, a lot of money because you, you need to clean it up properly and, and, uh, sometimes rip up flooring and replace flooring. So that ended up being another 5,000 to rehab that unit. Uh, Shortly after that, within the next year, the city came along and here in Grand Rapids, we have city inspections and they came along and most of what they had on their list of things we needed to address, we were already in the process of addressing them, but they wanted us to also um, repaint the entire building because there was peeling paint. And uh, it's, a, it's in an area, well, anywhere in Michigan, you know, that we're very concerned about lead paint. And these are old properties. So because there's peeling paint, uh, and this is a 100-year-old property, they want you to fix that. They want you to scrape it and repaint it, um, which would have been about eight or $9,000. We decided to just put siding on the whole thing, which is another way to deal with that. And that was $10,000. But going through that process, that's $10,000 that I didn't have. And the city's saying, you need to do this within two months. So we asked for an extension. 
just asking for that extension ended up costing us another thousand dollars. Plus we got additional, I mean, it's very, very, um, the city likes to be very aggressive in making people uh, stick to the, the uh, certification. So that ended up costing about $12,000 when all was said and done between the siding and the city uh, hitting us with fees and whatnot. So any cash flow I would have received in the first year, the second year, even the third year had already been spent on this property. Um, the, there was a third thing, and this is, this is what I, for a show called multifamily missteps, I think this is very important because this was a misstep. We didn't look carefully enough at the utility bills when we bought this property. And part of that was because it was in foreclosure and we didn't have good records to, to look at. But what we found, um, what, what we knew going in was that as the owner, the utilities were not split between the four units. So as the owner, I was going to be paying the electric, gas, water, and sewer. Um, we could have invested a lot more money to split, you know, to put in HVAC systems for each unit and really split it out uh, so that the tenants were responsible for those expenses. But this wasn't a high enough um, quality type property to, to be worth it. It wasn't worth that investment. And what that meant was that the utility bills alone were taking up about 23% of our gross income on this property. Now, anytime you see your utility bills, when you add them up, and I'm talking electric, gas, water, and sewer, when, they re, when, they're, when they're over 15%, you've got a problem. When you are over 20%, you have a substantial problem. And I'll never forget, I mentioned Sue Nelson, I remember her saying, if it's 25%, run as fast as you can. So <laughs> we realized way too late that we were at 23%. And there was really, other than going in and putting substantial investment into the, the, each unit to put in a separate HVAC and, and split the utilities, there was really not much we could do. Um, because we also knew we couldn't really raise rent above where it was because there was kind of a ceiling on our rent uh, in that area with what tenants would be willing to pay. So that was a big drag on our cash flow on this property. And that's something that I wish we had paid more attention to when we bought it. Uh, so I will tell you, I'll give you some more numbers here. And I'm looking at them here. If you're, if you're watching me on YouTube, you can tell that I'm looking at them on the other page. Our cash flow really during the four years that we own this property um, it averaged out to just like two or 3% a year. Because we did start making a little bit of cash flow in the third and fourth years. And, and we had it for four and a half years, actually. So the one thing that saved us on this property, the only thing that saved us on this property was the improving market. So because the, the market was improving, we bought this in 2009, we sold it uh, right around 2014. The value had gone up substantially and we were able to sell it for $115,000. Which today, I, you could probably sell it for 200,000 or more. Um, but with that profit, if you take the profit from sale after expenses plus the cash flow, we averaged about a 12% return on our investment all in, you know, the acquisition and rehab costs, 12% return per year. Uh, 
which is okay, but for all the work we put into it and the headache and compared to the stock market, we could have done much better. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> so was that, that was 2009 to 2014. So five years, average return of 12% a year, right? Yeah, when all was said and done. And we lost, we were losing money and spending more money in the first couple of years. Wow. So what did you do to make sure that that never happens to you again? Well, yeah. So there's a couple of lessons I took away from that. Um, you know, you really have to go in strong when you buy a property, especially a, a distressed property like this budget for everything that needs to be done. And that includes splitting the utilities or figuring out how do you get those utility costs down? Because quite often, if you buy a property that does have high utility costs, that's an opportunity. Because if you do it, make the investment up front, you can get that cost down and add a lot of value to these properties. Um, so we should have budgeted for that. We should have realized the city was going to make us address the exterior of the property and budgeted another 10,000 for that. Um, we were just, uh, we were kind of blinded by the fact that we were able to buy this at such a bargain basement price. And didn't really take all that into consideration. Um, another lesson that I took from that is you really got to let your dogs loose, cut your dogs loose. You know, if your property is just limping along and it doesn't look like you're going to make a, a great return on it eventually, cut it loose, get rid of it as quickly as you possibly can. And uh, the, the one good thing that came from owning this property is, is that uh, uh, one of our maintenance guys, one of our maintenance technicians was over there working on it one day and a neighbor came over and, and thanked him. Uh, for improving the neighborhood by getting rid of the drug dealers that used to live in that house. So we did improve the neighborhood and we're proud of that. We just didn't really make a great profit in the process. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. And so after that you went, you're going big and you're going or go home, right? You went straight to hundred plus units, right? Yeah. You, when, once you go bigger and, and it's not go big or go home, I would still buy a four unit under the right conditions. Uh, and this is in the neighborhood of Grand Rapids. It's called, it was right on the edge of Heritage Hill, which is a, a historic neighborhood, really incredible old properties. Um, you can get high, much higher rents now. Uh, so I would still buy in that neighborhood. I'd buy a duplex if I could um, at the right price. But when you go bigger, when you, when you get over 10 units, 20 units, 100 units, um, you get um, efficiency of scale. You know, if, if one tenant is causing problems or you have to evict them or they don't pay their rent, uh, you still have 99 other units that are doing that. And, and the profit potential is greater. And, and the thing that really makes a difference, and, and you know, when you, your show is called multifamily missteps. Well, multifamily, it can be four units or it can be five units or more. And I'm sure you've talked about this on the show, but if you're one to four units, it's a residential type loan that you're going to get. And it's going to be valued based on the comparables in the neighborhood. When you're over five units, you know, whether you're five to 500 or 5,000 units, it's valued based on your net operating income. And the rule of thumb with a 10 cap is for every dollar that you add in value through increasing income or decreasing expenses, you, that's an exponent, exponential increase of, of 10, by 10 
uh, at a 10 cap. So if I save a dollar, I've added $10 to the value of that property. If it's a five cap, then you've actually added $20 in value to that property. So understanding how that math works when it comes to commercial properties, that really makes a big difference on your profit potential. Awesome. And so Brian, the last question I like to ask my guests is what words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? Um, pay close attention to the details. And I, I, this, this is a little bit different, I'm sure than what a lot of your guests would say, but, um, we, I'm going to share another, um, pitfall that we've run into. And I, and this has been discovered recently, but I would encourage everyone to look at their gas bill. And I'm going to tell you what to look for. So here in Michigan, we've deregulated our, our gas industry. So um, DTE provides our gas. And there are third-party vendors that can, that can provide that gas for you through DTE. And typically, they'll come to you. I don't know if you have this where, where you live, Jerome, but typically, they'll come to you and they'll say, hey, we can save you a lot of money on your gas. Uh, here's what DTE charges or your gas provider charges. Here's what we charge. All you have to do is sign up and we'll save you hundreds of dollars a year. Well, these things are always great in the beginning because they do save you money. But at some point, they go off the rails and they start gouging you. And I, it came to light recently that we had this third-party gas provider on a number of our properties on a number of our gas bills. And the cost across the board was in the tens of thousands of dollars, additional dollars that we were paying them over what we would have been paying our gas company. So my concrete actionable advice to all your listeners is go check your gas bill right now. Make sure there are no third-party providers providing that gas uh, instead of your actual gas company. I think that's awesome, especially for the people that are listening in the northern part of the country where they rely on gas for a lot, large part of the heating and uh, water um, responsibilities. Yeah, here in Michigan, it's, it's, you, you see mostly gas, uh, gas heat, or well, you see quite a bit of gas heat. Well, Brian, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with the listeners today. Um, we, we've learned a ton, and it's amazing to see somebody with such vast experience. You've been doing it a long time, and it's really interesting to also see, like, you've pressed pause. Like, you, you thought things, I assume you thought things were overpriced, and so you've just been kind of managing the portfolio you have, which shows your patience. And I, I think real estate is a long game, and I think if you're investing in multifamily, you've got to be prudent in your buys. And I think your deal shows that, hey, this this quad, you bought it at a really low price. You were able to operate and handle the things. And on the back end, because of appreciation, you were able to get out of it and still make a profit, even though you had a bunch of challenges along the way and not able to take out much cash flow. But I think those are some really, really valuable lessons. And I'm deeply grateful for you coming on and sharing with our audience. Hey, Jerome, you're, you're a great host. Uh, you're also a great guest. You're, you're going to be on my show, uh, Rental Property Owner and Real Estate Investor Podcast. I think you do a great job and I think you're providing a great service to real estate investors through this show, helping them learn where the pitfalls might be. And I would encourage your listeners to go to iTunes or wherever they listen to this podcast and give you uh, five stars for whatever the highest number of stars 
and review is because both of us know that uh, as podcasters, it's those reviews and ratings that really help drive an audience. So uh, I, I would encourage your audience to, to uh, step up and give you a great rating. Well, you heard it from the man himself. I think he's got like 850,000 downloads or something insane. So Brian, thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thanks, Jerome. You made it to this juncture. So you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review. And share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you. Ooh.